0: It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, August 27, 2020. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson has movie recommendations. He's calling this Comfort Food Movies on Netflix. Uh, And he talks about movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and West Side Story and Fiddler on the Roof and uh, my favorite, Back to the Future, and others. Um, And they're available now. So if you have a Netflix subscription, you can access these immediately. These aren't necessarily movies you would think to watch because maybe you've seen them or they're, they're in your mind, they're older. But really, you know, when these movies come on TV, if you're just flipping around sort of old-fashioned TV channels and one of these movies comes on, you're going to stop what you're doing probably on a Sunday afternoon and you're just going to watch them. Well, you might as well just play them for yourself on Netflix. Steven also gives some of his uh, opinions about some of these movies, what makes them work, Um, And I think you're going to enjoy uh, this episode of Lockdown Viewing with Stephen Tomlinson. Here's Stephen.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. And for the next 20 minutes or so, I'll be talking about movies and television while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. But today I'll be discussing several older, light late summer movies to watch on Netflix, on Netflix. So let's consider this the classic comfort food edition of lockdown viewing. From family-friendly adventure fantasy movies, to epic historical tales, to corny romantic comedies and musicals, as well as silly but fun goofball spoofs. I mean, you can never go wrong with a classic, right? Of course, the streaming services have taken over the exhibition of movies and series. And Netflix, it, well... Is only one of those, but nevertheless, it's still the largest one. So it's the one you are most likely to be familiar with. Now, no doubt, most of these movies you may have seen, and a lot of them come from the 1980s. Um, certainly, when I was younger and coming of age. But I chose them as titles with a certain degree of easygoing nostalgia that makes them fun to watch again. The first is Raiders of the Lost Ark. The always rewatchable nineteen thirty set Steven Spielberg fantasy adventure film with Harrison Ford, as of course, the famed globe-trotting archaeologist who is here tasked with finding the legendary Ark of the Covenant and embarks on a journey across the world to do so, hopefully before the evil Nazis do. It's great fun with lots of deft comedic moments, um, And it's it's really something of a nostalgic kick for me, as I saw a lot of it upon its initial theatrical release back in 1981. When as a teenager, I finally got my first ever job working as an usher at the Paramount Theater in Halifax, Nova Scotia. In fact, I think I still have vast swaths of dialogues semi-memorized from the movie. I mean... The entire film starts big and finishes big, right? I mean, part of this genius is that it, 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 it doesn't just recreate the, the old serials of, you know, the 1930s, 40s and 50s, but brings other material into the mix too. Not that I think many of us would have been aware of that at the time, in 1991, or 81, excuse me, uh, but certainly in rest- retrospect, you can detect elements of old pulp novels, um, James Bond films, uh, the paranormal, and at the very end of the movie, a touch of EC horror comics as well, with, uh, that scene of the opening of the arc, uh, which, you know, unleashes supernatural forces inside, which then proceed to make, uh, All the bad guys melt, explode, and burst into flame. Highly memorable it is. Now, Raiders of the Lost Ark was, of course, a huge commercial success at the time, uh, as was Spielberg's next film, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, which is also on Netflix um, and is very much a consummate summer movie. Of course, it did come out in the summer of 1982 and is the story of a troubled adolescent who summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape Earth and return to his home world. Now, this film was, for Spielberg, a very personal project. And you might also say that it was the point at which he became a kind of hybrid Entertainer and artist for the first time, and certainly in its fusion of mass appeal and stylistic mastery, it is i think I think it remains perhaps um his most sincere and heartfelt movie in many ways. you know Spielberg has long had a fascination with childhood um, which is a subject that was once very much disparaged by many film critics as a sign of his supposed immaturity. Um But in retrospect, that appears not only snide when you think about it, but a little sad. <laughs> Instead, I think E.T. is a reminder that there are few more interesting subjects than childhood, uh, which is a point underlined when you think about it by the dearth of filmmakers who can really tackle the subject well. And so, Spielberg really is the the filmmaker to go to for um for that kind of um subject material and arguably no one has ever directed young actors as consistently well as him and that's especially evident in DT which you know um in which he creates an uncannily real portrayal of the lives of his preteen characters uh, especially in their sense of wonder but not only that there's also a you know a strong degree of reality about them too and that their lives are not always uh, happy-go-lucky by any means no not at all indeed i think et works so well because it's it's very close portrayal of the world of his child protagonists would be an interesting film even without the alien himself Another always fun summer blockbuster from Steven Spielberg, the man who virtually invented the term is Jurassic Park. Now, after a short stint on the new NBC streaming platform Peacock, Jurassic Park and its two subsequent installments, um, there are in fact uh, more as I speak, they are available to watch in all their glory on Netflix. And uh, Just to be clear, that's the first three Jurassic Park movies. Now, this uh, now nearly hallowed franchise with um, newer entries, as I indicated, still being made is built around family oriented science fiction adventure tales set in a world where science has made it possible to bring dinosaurs back to life. Now, it's maybe hard to remember, uh, but back in 1993, when this came out, it was very much a phenomenon. Jurassic Park, the movie that is, uh, everybody seemed really quite fascinated with the world of dinosaurs, and not only adolescent boys, uh, though they may have been to the forefront. Um, Yes, that first film, um, it's hard to recall, but it was the highest grossing film ever, back when it was released in 1993, at a time when... You know, a, a wildlife park of cloned dinosaurs was indeed a revelation. I mean, we'd seen computer-generated special effects before, but they always looked really quite cheesy. But uh, Jurassic Park's dinosaurs actually look kind of real, or at least, you know, somewhat real in <laughs> retrospect. Uh, so it, it remains really mind-blowing when you think about it, what Spielberg and company were able to pull off back then, given the processing power available with uh, computers. Back in the day. Now, blockbusters have always had plenty of spectacle, especially, you know, the superhero movies of today. And people might call them awesome, but there's often very little actual awe in them these days, at least to my jaded eyes. Uh, But that's something that Spielberg has always been great at, you know, the awesome spectacle. And maybe that's because he keeps the reveal until quite some way into the movie you know, amusingly letting the characters become a little bored, even disappointed. And then suddenly they spot a giant dinosaur, for example, as in Jurassic Park. Um, particularly, and I'm, I'm thinking of the scene where, you know, John Williams' theme really kicks in for the first time. But as always in Spielberg, it's the, it's the boyish excitement which really, really gets to you. Here, especially manifested in the character of Sam Neill, which, you know, really sells several moments in the movie of of real wonder and all. You know, in addition to Sam Neill, the film also made really big stars of both Laura Dern and uh, Jeff Goldblum as well. Hey, did you know that Steven Spielberg has done a contemporary remake of West Side Story? Well, now you do. And it's set for a December theatrical release, though much, of course, will depend on COVID. The film's screenplay... By Tony Kirshner is expected to hew more closely to the original 1957 Broadway script than did the 1961 film adaptation directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. Oh, and Rita Moreno is in it again, uh, believe it or not, though of course in a very different role this time, almost 60 years later. But perhaps in preparation for the Spielberg remake, you can uh, watch again the classic Bernstein and Sondheim tragic, romantic musical that took Romeo and Juliet into what were then the mean streets of Manhattan. Mm. And perhaps they still are mean, for all I know. But in any case, the film, of course, centers on the turf war between two rival teenage gangs and the young lovers who try to cross those battle lines to be together. Um. You know, in many ways, it's the musical that is for people who don't even really like musicals. Um, You know, this story of Tony and Maria with its euphoric dance sequences and, which I'm sure will be repeated uh, uh, with the new Spielberg film, and ultra melodic tunes, um, you know, which truly have captivated audiences for decades. I mean, I grew up on rock and roll, but, uh, you know, even I love, um, you know, these old uh, Broadway numbers. So let's uh, let's keep our fingers crossed, hope for the best, and, you know, really hope we'll get to see this uh, new Spielberg remake by the end of the year, even in theaters, um, if not on streaming services uh, by then. And speaking of classic musicals to watch on Netflix... If you're up for re-watching Fiddler on the Roof, it's there to see again the lavish, carefully made and splendidly designed 1971 cinematic adaptation of the Tony-winning musical. Of course, it tells the story of Tevye, the fictional milkman and father of five daughters living in a Ukrainian ghetto village in 1905. He works hard to provide a good home and maintain his religious traditions, but All of that is challenged thanks to the poverty and prejudice that he faces, not to mention the unconventional romantic entanglements that his daughters keep finding themselves in. Now, Fiddler is, of course, an old tale with a timeless message that very much affirms human decency, I think, as well as, you know, all of the traditional verities like loyalty, bravery, and certainly in this case, folk humor of a kind. Plus, we you know we we can't help but put our hands together and you know shimmy whenever the charismatic <laughs> I am topo, as tevia sings uh, if i were a rich man da 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 anyway let's move on quickly um oh i don't know looking for a sweet tempered old fashioned and heartwarming story about friendship well you know you could do worse than the karate kid from 1984 perhaps Perhaps you've never seen it. Um, it is, uh, I'll remind you, I, but a martial arts master played by uh, Pat Morita, best known for his role on Happy Days, the sitcom. Uh, but who in the film agrees to teach karate to a much bullied teenager played, uh, by Ralph, uh, Macchio. Or is it Macchio? I think it was always pronounced Macchio, wasn't it? Um, undeniably, this movie is <laughs> shamelessly manipulative, as are so many of the movies under discussion here today, but we'd love, we'd love them for that. Come on, let's face it. Um, nevertheless, it is undeniably ineffective. I feel a good story is The Karate Kid, which, um, has sometimes been called Rocky for kids, but I don't think that's, or maybe Rocky, if Rocky were a kid, <laughs> Uh, maybe that is fair. Maybe that is a good description of it. But um, like all of these movies, it really does have a timeless feel-good factor to it that uh you know that we can all respond to, I think, in uh rough times like today. Although a little more fanciful, if no less delightful, another movie from that period of the mid-80s is Back to the Future. Um, very much old fashioned and feel good. And also I'm on Netflix, as is, I'll remind you, all of these movies under discussion today. All of this, uh, late summer comfort food that I'm, um, bringing to you and, as it were. Um, in Back to the Future, the ever-earnest Michael J. Fox plays Marty McFly, of course, who accidentally drives a time machine from 1985 to 1955, where he must race the clock, as it were, to ensure that his future parents fall in love. Imagine what happens if they don't. <laughs> he doesn't exist, right? Among the plethora of innocent charms and sweetly smart moments on offer in this movie, there's the, the near-perfect, I think, tightly plotted for certain script by director Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, which not only negotiates its time-travel paradoxes uh, with um, a certain degree of deft, uh, exuberant wit, and just doesn't excide without the, uh, the confusion of, say, a um Christopher Nolan movie, by example. Um I think I think the script also invests the um the, you know the, the 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 lighthearted plot with a a seasoning to of uh, some very honest drama just under the surface of the film. And I think therein lies its uh its real success and one of the reasons why we love to return to Back to the Future, no no matter how many times we may have seen it in the past. It's funny, sad, imaginative, and in the end, altogether an uplifting reminder of the type of entertaining, family-oriented confection that Hollywood could seemingly once provide so very effortlessly. Mm -hmm. Another movie very similar in spirit to both um, The Karate Kid and Back to the Future is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which came out the following year in 1986, uh, you know, with that other 80s era boyish icon, Matthew Broderick, uh, who in this film convinces his entire school that he's at death's door (laughs) in order to hit the streets of Chicago with his girlfriend and best friend to have a day of fun. You know, I think when people look back fondly uh at the work of its director, John Hughes, in general, it's it's really movies like this one that they're mostly thinking of, you know, about, you know, it's like so many of his films, uh not, you, you know, young people not following society's rules all the time and you know, first learning to live a life that is um, truly their own. I think that's at the heart of most uh, Hughes films, um, this one in particular, but I'm also thinking of The Breakfast Club, for example. But uh, Ferris Bueller is really a free-spirited romp, I think it's fair to say, and very much a kind of righteous pain to goofing off, and as such, is a Devil May Care, Delightful Respite from the Grueling Everyday Realities of Life. So, one that is always worth re-watching, I think it's fair to say. That's Fer- Fer- Ferris Bueller's Day Off, available to watch on Netflix. Another popular classic from the 1980s that you can watch again on the streaming giant is the super slick, very romantic Dirty Dancing, both... Smart and funny, touching and unabashedly sensual. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it perhaps many times, but may like to do so again. I mean, this is consummate comfort food if there ever was any. Of course, it tells the story of a young woman, uh, Jennifer Gray, who falls in love with her free-spirited dance instructor played uh, so memorably by Patrick Swayze while vacationing with her family at a Catskills Mountain Resort. Yes, the strength of the film very much remains the red hot chemistry and convincing emotional bond between the two leads. And they're wonderful dancers too, right? Yes, there are certainly some cliches of <laughs> plenty in the movie as there, as there are in uh, almost all of the movies I'm I'm, 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 I'm talking about today. But, you know, therein lies their joy to some extent uh the the familiarity that we we have the close familiarity that we have with them you know they're so much a part of our lives in in many ways like close friends uh so certainly we can excuse some of the more melodramatic plot devices uh you know that uh Creak at the joints, as it were. But still, if you give yourself over to a movie like this, I mean, and just glow with, just go with the flow. The, the potency of, uh, of the pop r- romance just cannot be denied, especially in the propulsive drive and pulse of the editing that really amplifies the excitement of it all. Another highly rewatchable, iconic romantic musical. It's slightly lighter in spirit than Dirty Dancing, and from about 10 years earlier is, can you guess the movie I'm about to say? Greece, Greece, with its acceptable kind of bad boy, John Travolta, and uh, co-lead Olivia Newton-John, who, if I remember, plays, uh, if I remember correctly, plays an Aussie... Transported to American high school. Of course, in the 1950s when the movie is set, most memorably so. I'm not sure Travolta and uh, Newton John are the most convincing of typical American high schoolers. Uh, At least in Travolta's case, being, uh, I think at the time, several years older than um, typical high school age. Of course, he could have been kept behind for several years, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think for that many years. Um, Greece, uh, I remember it well when it came out in the summer of 1978, it was a big, big deal. Uh, and it it was a, a time when there was very much a lot of nostalgia for the 1950s. Um, you know, the upbeat soundtrack was everywhere on the radio. I mean, you, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing music from music from the movie. Um, yet in many ways it, it doesn't really feel like it belongs to any one era it's it's almost like it's always existed maybe because it's it's a time when i was coming of age so it, it it's always it's always been it's always been around you know like uh like uh like a high school acquaintance who you uh, can you keep up with uh now and then of course Greece is not really the 1950s high school movie musical that it thinks it is, but rather a fantasy about what a 1950s high school musical should be. It's in many ways a larger, funnier, wittier, more imaginative than Hollywood movie with a life that is all its own. It uses the Eisenhower era, the characters, the costumes, gestures, and particularly the music to create a timeless place that really has little to do with any real 1950s than with a kind of show business that is, you know, forever and old fashioned at the same time, both sentimental and even wise to some extent. And of course, it's also terrific fun, no matter how many times you've seen it. And yes, it's Every bit the great song fest that you remember it as, with bucket loads of (laughs) innuendo thrown in behind, Uh, a lot of which I wouldn't have got at the time. Some of the most energetic musical numbers ever to grace the inside of a movie theater. Movie theaters. Remember those? Now most of the films I'm talking about here today are really quite light-hearted but there are also several great outright old comedies on Netflix too and I'm I'm thinking principally here of the cheeky parody film Airplane which as you will recall makes fun of several of the old airport disaster movies of the 1970s Released in the summer of 1980, it's it's both terribly silly and very funny at the same time. Indeed, many consider it to be the funniest movie ever made. I'm not sure I would go that far, but it's it certainly is. It certainly is good for a uh a fun time. Uh written and directed by Jerry and David Zucker and Jim Abrams, too, Airplane is really a sketch movie, unlike any of these others under discussion. Um, a sketch movie that ostensibly follows a very loose story, such as it is of a burned out, lovelorn ex-fighter pilot, uh, played by Robert Hayes, who is pressed into service when an airliner's crew succumbs to a debilitating food poisoning. Also starring Julie Haggerty, Leslie Nielsen, Peter Graves, and more, um, The level of humor here may not always be consistent, especially 40 years later, (laughs) but the filmmakers have thrown almost everything into the film uh, with a kind of shotgun approach. And so the routines, the spoofs and gags, um, they still, I think it's fair to say, work more often than not, though, even back in the day um, when the film first came out in the summer, the summer of 1980, as I recall. Um, they were even a little dated then, but again, it's, 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 it's still fun. You know, we forgive that datedness. Um, I mean, you know, the humor and wordplay may be a little old fashioned, you know, but they're forever for always. And so airplane remains, you know, clever, confident and furiously energetic, and it has to be said, said, um, mm-hmm. that I think two of its most sadly neglected selling points, um, are that it's really quite brief at, at only 88 minutes. And so, like, um, many films today, it really doesn't overstay its welcome. And it also looks inexpensive without looking cheap. Uh, you know, in an era, uh, today when so many very expensive films look um, a lot cheaper than they really are. That's airplane, uh, you know, which I I certainly bring a very uh, kind of vaguely nostalgic feeling to. And um, is again another one of those movies that I think will provide, however briefly, a a remedy for these um, somewhat difficult times. Um, and in that regard, it's really just what the doctor ordered. You know, before there were time loop movies and shows like 2003's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and today's series, Russian Doll, there was Groundhog Day, the now iconic movie from 1993 with Bill Murray as a man forced to live the same day over and over and over again, which is an acute feeling that many of us may have around this time. Um... Murray's character is rather contemptuous, bitter, and self-centered. He plays a weatherman uh, who, as I said, finds himself in this endless cycle of personal hell. But uh, I think only Bill Murray is it fair to say who could make such a character uh, bearable, charismatic, and even endearing to a degree. You know, he 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 brings to those traits. Um, something, as I said, endearing and, uh, forgivable for, for some reason, whatever reason. It's, it's Bill Murray and we love to watch him in whatever the role. Uh, and however much they're curmudgeon, which he certainly is in Groundhog Day. Um, there's just something about his nonchalance and comic timing that is just perfect, especially in this movie. Now, uh, Groundhog Day is not, of course, a parody film like Airplane. Uh, It's uh, considerably more ambitious in theme, even profound to some extent. Uh, You know, um, though never it has to be said at the expense of the laughs. So you can you can safely uh, watch it with um, with thoughts of good times ahead. Another uh, com- classic uh, comedy on Netflix. Uh, in, this, in this case, uh, very much more romantic than um, than Groundhog Day is Sleepless in Seattle with uh, with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Uh, and yet another movie from 1993, <laughs> like uh, like Groundhog Day. Um, it's it's of course, and I'm sure you've seen it before. Really, a sweet and very charming film with. Uh, a lot of forgivable cliches um, and um, a great deal of very much uh, re-watchable content. It, um, is this the most notable film from writer-director Nora Ephron? Perhaps it is. In many ways, it, it certainly might be her most heartfelt and sincere film. Um, and certainly a very sentimental one. Um, very charming, too. Um, so much so, almost impossible to imagine being made in today's Hollywood. Uh, just to remind you, of course, it's about two strangers, played by Ryan and Hanks, of course, whose hearts keep getting pulled together while life insists on keeping them apart. Um, you can guess where things will go. Um, and perhaps not since Love Story, although certainly without the, uh, the sad conclusion that I remember, there had not been a movie, I think it's fair to say, so shrewdly and predictably manipulative, but with emotions that are just so entertaining and, and, uh, perhaps it's not a fair comparison because Sleepless in Seattle is considerably more humorous, um, to say the least, um, than is a movie like Love Story from 1970. Um, moving a little away from the, um, from the, um, from the heartfelt, uh, tone of these, uh, 80s, largely 80s movies that I've been discussing, 80s and 90s films, is, uh, a favorite western of mine that you can find on Netflix and that is the epic Sergio Leone classic The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in which Clint Eastwood reprises his role as the laconic ever cool man with no name. Um, it's gorgeously shot and full of much gallows <laughs> humor. Uh, it's, it's a very witty film. Uh, made in 1967 um, and a huge hit at the time. It's a perennial classic uh, in many ways a guy's film that uh, uh that you know we love to return to every now and then a perennial classic as it were and uh the film follows not that the plot really matters that much uh it follows Eastwood as he travels the old west at the time of the American civil war in search of a cache of stolen gold uh, very much in the context of two rival characters played by Lee Van Cleef as a ruthless bounty hunter, um, and Eli Wallach as a, as a, uh, a stereotypical somewhat, uh, Mexican banded character. Certainly one of the great joys of the good, the bad, and the ugly is the music. Ennio Morricone's a superb soundtrack, really one of the greatest in movie history. And though ordained from the beginning of the film, the grandly operatic, and that's very much the word you want to use to describe this film, as well as his music, the grandly operatic three-way showdown that climaxes the film remains tense and thoroughly astonishingly staged. Especially, as I said, scored by uh, Morricone, whose work on this movie and other films with Leone, of which I think they made four altogether, remains one of the most outstanding director-composer collaborations in the history of film. But this one, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, is almost certainly the definitive spaghetti Western. And a whole lot of fun, even at two and a half hours to three hours, however long it might be. <laughs> Um, but unquestionably one of my, one of my all time favorites. And speaking of epics, um, I see that the 1962 Oscar winning Lawrence of Arabia is also on Netflix. And I mentioned this one because if you have a large widescreen TV, I'm sure it's going to look great on it. I mean, riveting from beginning to end, uh, in featuring amazing cinematography, it's really something you want to take advantage of with a, uh, with a large, uh, widescreen television. Of course, it isn't just the uh, cinematography that is outstanding in this movie. There's also the stellar lead performance from Peter O'Toole, of course, as the enigmatic World War, World War One era T.E. Lawrence, um, with uh, much admirable support from fellow actors Alec Guinness, uh, Omar Sharif, and Anthony Quinn, um, you know, in this story without a a trace of uh, excess. I mean, the film does everything an old school epic um, is supposed to do, and more. You know they they really don't make them like this anymore. That's for sure. And the movie manages both um, you know a sense of scale in being both kind of an intimate biopic of Lawrence, as well as an ex- expansive epic in the, the story how he sort of united uh, the tribes of Arabia at the time of World War One, And, you know, the movie does so with a certain degree of majesty, uh, merging everything into a kind of mesmerizing and Poetic uh, framework in only a way that uh, David Lee movies from that period can manage to do. I'm thinking, of course, also of 1965's, um, uh, Dr. Chivago as well. Yeah, they really don't make them like this uh, anymore. And as such, I think viewing it is like maybe taking Marty McFly's time machine back to a uh, movie age that was more naive than our own today in some ways, more sophisticated and ambitious back then. You know, I mean, this movie is three and a half hours and um audiences today seemingly just don't have the attention span for that anymore. Sadly, I think. Well, these are some of the classics, uh, what I've been calling the classic comfort food movies that you can watch or more likely rewatch on Netflix. But have no fear. If you do not subscribe to the streaming giant, you can also reserve all of these titles as DVDs at the library. And some are also available on the library's own streaming services, Canopy and Hoopla Digital. Anyway, that's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next time for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at s tomlinson at code or by, me, by means of the library's facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message all the best happy viewing and bye-bye for now
0: well that is today's episode of the code st luke podcast we hope you enjoyed it thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening here today The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.